following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 4, 1 through 5. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, We have been in a a series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Really, it's taken up the majority of the year. Um, We'll spend the first half of the year in the book of Ezra, the next half of the year in Nehemiah. And really, this is one story. Originally, in the scriptures, this is one book of the Bible put together, Ezra and Nehemiah. And and since then, the modern scriptures have separated them. But we are moving through the whole entire um, thing. And and really, the thrust of the, the narrative of this story that's being told is this idea that God's people are rebuilding from the ruins, that Jerusalem has fallen apart, the temple, the place where God's people would meet with God and worship him have been destroyed and ransacked, the people have been swept away into Babylonian captivity, and God, by his grace and power, has brought them back to rebuild what has been lost. Now at, this beginning, uh, at the beginning of this series, I drew a parallel here between the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and what's going on here at Sacred City Church. Why they are working on a building project, physically speaking, they're rebuilding the altar, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding a city. We too are working on a building project here, though it's not a physical building project. We are out to, we exist since day one to build a community, to build a culture that mirrors what we see in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, which can really be summed up in three things. One, a community that is unapologetically and unashamedly worships Jesus. That's forever our song. It's all about Jesus. Number two, to be a people of the word. People who hear God's word and submit to the lordship of Jesus in all areas of life because he is the king of the cosmos. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And number three, that as we live in in a posture of worship, posture of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens is we create a a place of beauty, a a beautiful culture, a place that people look in at and say, wow, there's something appealing about this that draws people into worship the God of heaven and earth alongside of us. Now, this is a huge undertaking. Like, all of that is wrapped up in our mission statement, whether, whether you realize it or not. It's a big thing. It's not something that you can just do overnight. It's not something that happens in 10 years, 20 years. This is a lifelong project. In fact, it's been going on for, well, centuries. 
And as we press on with this mission as a church, what's going to happen is we will face opposition. The adversaries will come out of the woodwork at some point, as we see in Ezra chapter 4 here today. And if we as a church want to defy the odds or, or, or defy the haters, as the kids say these days, and if we want to build a sacred city within the Quad Cities, there are three crucial lessons that we need to glean here from verses 1 through 5 of Ezra chapter 4. And I think they very much will help us along in the mission that God's called us to. So would you please join me in opening up your Bible this morning? If you didn't grab your Bible, there's a pew Bible. Also, I'll just say real quick, um, if you weren't here with us last week, uh, we've got the new uh, chapter a day Bible reading plan uh, bookmark in the hospitality room. You can grab that bad boy on your way out. Um, open up your Bible to Ezra chapter 4, um, and we're going to jump in there in a minute. I want to catch, catch you up on what has transpired so far, because I know many, we've got some, some fresh faces in here this morning. I want to fill you in on what's been going on thus far in the story of Ezra. So the story of Ezra opens with God's people, the people of Israel, living 500 miles away from their home base in Babylonian captivity. And what happens while they're tucked away uh, for about 50 years, they've been uh, shipped off into this new foreign land. God stirs up. This is one of the things that we see in chapter 1. God stirs up in the heart of people to take on this mission. First, he stirs up the heart of King Cyrus, who's, by the way, a pagan dude. and He doesn't, he doesn't love the Lord. He's not devoted to the Lord by any stretch of the imagination. But God stirs up in his heart. And he, he, he creates this edict that God's people would go back. And then God stirs up in the heart of his people that some of them would return to their homeland and start to rebuild. And then God stirs up in the hearts of people who stay back to con contribute goods and gold and service, or well, goods and, and resources to see to the work that God has called his people to take part of. So God stirs up, and the people make this exodus. It's the Exodus 2.0, and they return to their homeland in Jerusalem, and there they begin to rebuild. First, they build an altar, and the worship erupts from the people of God. They're happy to be back at their home base to worship God as he ought to be worshipped. And then they realize, oh, wait, we, we've built this altar, but there's no temple. There's no dwelling place that this needs to be, that, that we have been sent to actually build from the ruins. And so in chapter 3, we saw last week, they started rebuilding the foundation of the temple. And then they finished it. They finished the foundation. And, and it, it's sort of a, a mixed response of what's going on. For, for many people, it's a joyous celebration. The, the mission is moving forward. We're doing what we've been sent to do. The foundation's been laid, and it's got this feeling of this up into the right trajectory. But even among the congregation, there are old folks who have seen the previous temple, Solomon's temple, which has been ransacked and destroyed, and they see the contrast between the two temples, and they begin to weep. They're, they're saddened by it because they know that this new temple does not match the glory of Solomon's temple. Now, even though there's this mixed response, we're told in verse 13 that the people of chapter 3, excuse me, that the people are erupting with worship. So even while there's a minority of people that are sad about what's before them, the vast majority of God's people are overjoyed with what's taking place. It says in verse 13, um, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. It's, it's a joy overshadowed the sound of weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. 
So here we see, we see that these great shouts of God's people as the foundation's been laid to the temple draws some sort of attention in verse 1 of chapter 4. This was likely what drew out the adversaries is what they're called here in the, in the opening verse. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that, right, the loud shouts, they returned, uh, the returned exiles were building the, the temple. So they, they heard this, they were attracted by this, they drew their attention and they came to see what's going on. What's all of this ruckus that's going on among God's people? Now that's part of the function of true worship. True worship is meant to be conspicuous. True worship is meant to, to draw people's attention to something, not just anything, not just to the shouts, not just to the movements and the dancing and, and the festivals and the celebrations, but to put the spotlight on God. See, it's very clear here, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 11, they're singing about God, not just about them being home, they're singing about God, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. That is what worship is about, it's putting the spotlight on God, acknowledging his goodness, his beauty, his mercifulness, his grace, and his steadfast love. And the thing is, the more that we believe that this is true, that, that God is actually full of those things, that he is steadfast, that he is gracious and kind and compassionate, when we believe that, the more we believe that, the more, our exuber more exuberant our worship becomes. The more we get behind it, the more it's not just this, a profession of our mouth, but our whole body, the whole of our being gets into it. An exuberant worship piques people's interests and is ultimately what points them to God. Now, this is why for the last year and a half, I've been banging this drum about worshiping hard. As the people of God, we should worship hard. Like you work hard, we worship hard. And, and I think that's for two reasons here. One, it's because your worship bolsters the faith of your brother and sister. You don't know what kind of week that your brother and sister had. Right? They're sitting there and maybe they're discouraged and they're downcast and they, they feel like maybe God's distant and there's a piece of encouragement that comes when the person sitting next to them or behind them or in front of them or the voices that they hear in the congregation is booming even maybe in the midst of their silence. There's something encouraging about that that bolsters their faith and vice versa. Right? You, you feel downcast. You feel maybe God's not paying attention to me. Well, the, the songs of your brother and sister can strengthen your faith and give you encouragement, right? We do that, we, we're pointing each other to God and the grace that we tend to forget, right? We're a forgetful bunch here. It's all right, we can admit it. We tend to forget it. And, and so the songs of the brothers and sisters, the, the profession and the confession and, and the absolution and, and, the, and all the stuff that we do together here in this space points our brothers and sisters back to God. But the second part of that is it testifies to the grace and the beauty and the power of God to outsiders. So the people who are not yet part of this family, the people who do not yet totally belong here, as they hear us sing our songs and move our bodies and make joyful shouts of gladness, it piques their interest. Why? Why is it that these Christians worship God like this? Why is it that they get so excited 
Why is it that they give their money and give their time and resources and all the things? Why are they so invested in worshiping God like this? And when those questions come, we need to heed the words of, of Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 3.15. He says to be ready to give a defense or give an answer for the hope that we have. See, worshiping hard piques people's interests. And people's interests, when piqued, they ask questions. And when they ask questions, we give answers. Because God is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. Now, this is the case here at church, right? In the sanctuary here, the communion of the saints, the assembly of the body, but this is also, this also ought to be true at home and in the schools with our kids. Everyone is born a worshiper. Your kids are born worshipers. And just as the parents who stood up here today to make that, that vow to raise their children in the way of the Lord, we must teach our children how to worship rightly. As Calvin said, that our hearts are idol factories. It's not a matter of if we're worshiping, it's what we're worshiping. And so as parents, we ought to take this responsibility to heart, helping our kids worship rightly. Therefore, worship ought to permeate the walls of our home. A love for God should be visible to onlookers because our houses are ordered differently. We, we, we put our money in different places. We say yes to certain things and no to other things. We are, are wrapped up in a life of worship to Jesus, so much so that our homes are saturated. Our cars are saturated with worship. That learning is saturated with worship. And in that, we are showing our kids. We're drawing their attention to the grace and the goodness and the love and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Because worship attracts attention. Now, this story here shows us that, yes, worship attracts attention, but it's not always the kind of attention that we hope to draw. <laughs> right? This is true in verse 1. It says, the adversaries. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers and said to them, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of this other guy, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But then Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Jeshua and the heads of the fathers turned them away and said, you have nothing to do with us. Now, it's interesting here to see that so quickly they get labeled as the adversaries. You might have a question mark, but like, Why? Sounds like they want to help, right? Well, let, let's work some of these things through here, but here's the first lesson. Here's the first lesson for us to take from Ezra chapter four, verses one through five. This is the lesson. Number one, opposition will come when you are living on God's mission. It will come. It's not a matter of if it will come, but when it will come. The adversaries, the opponents, the rivals will eventually come out of the woodwork. And though it's unpleasant and though we may not like it, as Christians, we should not be surprised by this reality that opposition will come. In fact, Paul tells his, his apprentice Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, see the inclusiveness of that statement. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not a matter of if, but when. When will opposition come? And sometimes, who will it come from? Or where will it come from? 
We have to realize that every faithful man and woman of God has had at one point, or if not at one point, through the duration of their existence and service to the Lord, they've had a rival or opponent or some sort of a hater that's come out and, and criticized them. Let's try to get in the way. Let's try to interfere with the mission. I mean, for example, Jesus. <laughs> he lived his whole life under a constant scrutiny. All the haters were coming out against Jesus. You see, the apostle Paul and Peter, they were constantly persecuted for their, their faithfulness to the mission of God. Go back to the Old Testament. Godly women like Esther. She had Haman trying to get in the way of what God had called her to do. Luther. He got excommunicated. Calvin got booted from his church and they later hired him back. Whitfield and Spurgeon and Sproul and Billy Graham, they all had critics, all faithful men and women eager to serve God. And though they do it imperfectly, and maybe there are things to criticize, they were resolute in the calling and conviction that they had from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reality is that we will too. We will have opponents, we will have adversaries. Now, the part that makes it a little complicated now is that they can do it from behind a computer screen, right? It looks a little bit different, but we still will find ourselves against the adversaries. Now, we, here we see that ad, uh, Israel has their own adversaries, and, and there's a question of who are they? Why do they earn this label so quickly of being adversaries? Well, 2 Kings 17 um, gives us some insight on, on who these people are. Um, here in, in 2 Kings 17, it tells us, I'll summarize this for you, so we don't have to go all the way back to that, um, that after the Syrians had plundered the land of Samaria, they had imported other refugees, the Babylonians, there's a bunch of other, other people that were brought into that, but they were basically Babylonian transplants, people who came from this pagan land that now were dwelling as neighbors in Samaria to the Israelites. And as they came to this land, they brought with them idol worship. They, they, they worshiped false gods. They were very passionate about this. They, they went through all of the land of Samaria, and Samaria is kind of a, it's hard to really put your thumb down on what kind of a nation Samaria was, but giving them the benefit of the doubt, they were committed. They wanted to serve Yahweh, the king of the Israelites, and they, they very much felt like they were part of that, though the Jews had other uh, opinions about if they were actually, in fact, part of Jerusalem, or the, the Jews or not. Um, and so, these guys came in, they brought with them their idol worship, putting their idols in the high places on the altars and, and constructing all of these temples type, shrines type stuff, and God had a problem with that. And I make you, I'm not making this up, this is real, this is, real, this is why you should read the Bible, because it's fascinating. Um, God sent lions to attack them? For real. Lions came and killed some of them. That's what it says in 2 Kings 17. Uh, and so the king of Assyria says, okay, maybe we shouldn't uh, be as passionate about idol worship as we are and maybe learn um, about this God of the land, right? This, this, so this local God, we should learn his ways. And so they send back this Samaritan uh, priest to kind of help them figure out. But what happens here is, is this, me this meshing of the ideologies, meshing of the religions. They did not come and abandon their old ways as God has professed that, there are, that he is the Lord. There are no other gods before him. He is one. They disregarded that claim that the God of Israel had made, and they just added God to their spiritual buffet. They tried the both-and method. Little God, little ball, little this God, little that God, little this God. Look. Kind of did some sort of a hybrid. And so when they say in verse 2, they, they go to, to the leaders and say, hey, we, we worship the Lord like you do. We've been doing it for a while. Well, that, that isn't a true statement. 
That's a half-truth. That's a, a misrepresentation of what's actually going on. And we know that because later on in 2 Kings 17 and 19, it says, to this day, which is about the time that Ezra and Nehemiah are being written, they still don't fear the Lord, and their kids are doing the same. Their affections were divided. Their allegiance was split. They were not devoted to the Lord. They were, they were really not devoted to anything. And, th- and they trained their kids in this way, too. This shows us that Christians are not the only ones who disciple their kids. And so with this, this is how we come to the conclusion that they are adversaries. They're half-hearted in their devotion to God and to God's mission. And either by uh, the prompting of the Holy Spirit or the leader's intuition, Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the fathers of the household turn these folks away. They see them for what they are, this this low commitment, and they turn them away in verse 3. You have no part in this with us. Because to partner with them, they know this, to partner with them could derail the entire project that they've been set there to do. And to make this sort of partnership could mean that they fail before they even start. Now, this is why it's important for churches to thoroughly vet leaders. This is why it's important for churches to vet partnerships. You don't want to lock arms with somebody who's going to try to take you in a different way than what the Lord has assigned to you. Theology matters. Worship matters. And so there is this call to to be particular about what we link up with or who we link up with. Because to compromise on our convictions could lead to our unraveling. This is, a the, uh, this, is, this is a principle that not only applies to church and, and where we make connections and partnerships in that regard, but this applies to marriage. This, this applies to business enterprise. Right? There's a danger here. In 2 Corinthians, it warns us not to be unequally yoked because if you've got somebody that's operating on this foundation and you're on this foundation and you're trying to build a life together, there are two separate foundations and it will destroy. You're essentially building two different lives. There's no shared life, and difficulty and hardship can easily emerge, and before you know it, the mission is slipping through the cracks. Now, one thing as we talk about adversaries, as we talk about the opponents that we see here in Ezra 4 and other adversaries that we might uh, see within our own day and age is to remember that our adversaries are not primarily flesh and blood. The opponents of Christ and his mission are not primarily flesh and blood, though they might manifest as a city council or as an individual or a cooperate or co- corporation or even some sort of a group. They aren't flesh and blood. Now, the, the early church faced all kinds of persecution from, from institution, from, from Rome, from the Jewish leaders and the synagogues that did not like what Jesus had to say. And so they see that there is this physical representation of, of, of oppression or of, of, of persecution, but they're able to know that it's not primarily flesh and blood. It's Ephesians 6, 12 tells us, we wrestle against the powers, the spiritual forces of darkness. There are forces that are at work, maybe working through physical people or institutions, but behind it all are these dark spiritual forces. And if we forget this, if we forget the reality that, that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spirit, the powers of darkness, we will label the wrong person as the enemy. A perfect example of this would be the Apostle Paul. For a long time, 
Saul was his name before he came to Christ, um, Saul persecuted the church. He was one of the Pharisees that did not like the mission of God moving forward. Now, if the church would have demonized him, then, then Paul would not have shaped the culture of the church in the manner that would, the Lord had set for him to do. The powers that were moving Paul to persecute were the spiritual powers of darkness, and God shows his power over those powers and redeems Paul and becomes one of the most successful missionaries that's ever put his feet here on this earth. Now, the reason why we have adversaries, these spiritual powers, uh, uh, forces of darkness, is because these forces hate everything that God is for, especially when God's people worship rightly. You try to order your home in a worshipful way, the enemy will attack. You try to order your church to worship rightly, the enemy will attack. They hate it when God gets the worship and glory and praise that he is due. And so here's this, to take you back to that, that passage in 2 Timothy. We should not be surprised when the opposition comes. And it does us good to know where that opposition is coming from. And as we see where that opposition is coming from and when it comes, we ought to actually be encouraged. And here's why. If you are being persecuted, if you are being opposed because of your commitment to the Lord and setting out on his mission, it's likely that you are doing the will of God. When the adversaries come, it's not because it's not because you're dragging your feet on the mission of God. It's not because you know, you're a non-factor in the mission of God. It's because you're actually creating waves for the kingdom of God. And so you can take heart. You can be encouraged by that reality, even though it's a bit paradoxical. Now, the second lesson that we learn, so the first is opposition is going to come. It's going to come. The second lesson is to learn the tactics of your opponent. Learn the schemes of your adversaries. This is from the art of war. Know thy enemy, or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, don't let Satan outsmart you by being ignorant to his designs. Now here in Ezra chapter 4, we see several of the tactics that the ad adversaries deploy to disrupt the mission that they've been sent to do. And the first one, We've already acknowledged this, is that they've acted like faux friends. Oh, we worship the same God. We're, we're about that. Well, pretty soon we see that their real colors, their true colors are exposed in verses four and five. And their, their aim here, whether they set out to do it on the onset or maybe on the back end, is that they were trying to sabotage from the inside the work that God had commanded to take place to slowly turn the ship away from its destination so they, they eventually end, end up in the middle of nowhere in the ocean. But we see here their true colors are exposed as verse four and five say, here, here goes. Then the people of the land, so those are the, the, the hostiles, the adversaries, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So after they try to sabotage from the inside, they start going very adamantly opposed to them. They're, they're, they're working from the outside, trying to discourage these people from carrying out God's plan. They get in their head, right? I, we're here to discourage you. We're here to slow you down, to drag your feet, trying to get in their head, to cast doubt, to slow down, to impede their work. 
This is not a new tactic of getting in their head, of casting doubt. This is exactly what Satan did in the garden when he goes to Adam and Eve. Did God really say you can't even touch this fruit? He's messing, there's discouragement, there's, there's a, a, a psychological warfare that's going on in that moment. The next thing that we see is that these adversaries make them afraid. Now the people of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, are outnumbered. They are, are a, a minority voice among the people of those, that area right now. They're very much um, small in number comparatively. And so there's this real threat that they could be smushed out if they don't watch out. Like, these adversaries could come in and cause physical harm to them. They threaten their privileges and freedoms. They harass them until they feel like their hands are tied and there's nothing that they can do. And then they start using more sinister methods of bribing counselors. There's, there's political corruption going on here. They use politics to frustrate the mission, which, by the way, this should be for Christians who love the word of God and are committed to the word of God, this is something that we should be on alert, on alert for. There's a rising concern in our culture today that, that the overstep of government, of overstep of po- politics, that could suppress the voice of truth that God has called us to bellow out from the sanctuary. And then to sneak ahead to next week with verse six, we see them hurling these, these debased accusations See, character assassination. Well, they're the, this, this, this is a group of bad people. They're doing bad stuff. All of these tactics are sort of compiling. And guess what? These are not the only tactics that the enemy uses. You've got marital strife. There's jealousy. There's bitterness. You, you can go through the whole thing. I mean, like, it, it's, he's got a pretty good arsenal of tactics. And we can see this here as it's listed out in verses four and five, but not only was it a multitude of tactics, there was a relentlessness and a constant flow of them pouring out. It says that it happened um, from the days of King Osiris to the days of, through the days of Darius. It's ongoing, nonstop, constant bombardment with, with opposition, with, with frustrated plans, with, with harassment. All of these things just keep going and going and going. And when you are in that spot, when you feel like you're just being bombarded with all these accusations and with, with things that it, you're missing the mark, that you're not doing what God has called you, you, you feel that. It's easy to want to fold, to find the easy way out, to resign, and, and maybe, maybe join the mob, to jump, jump in and launch your own criticisms of the movement. See, Satan will do anything, anything, to prevent the mission of God from advancing. And sometimes we feel that pressure. It feels overwhelming, very hard. But here we have an example in Israel. They give us an example to follow. That in the midst of opposition, in the midst of, of, of persecution, in the midst of the rivals, they keep pressing on. See, even as the accusations get elevated to the king of Persia, 
we'll see next week, they keep working at the building project. The project doesn't stop yet. It, it will come to a halt here eventually, and we'll see why next week. It doesn't come to a halt when they start facing opposition. They keep pressing on. And in fact, here's the third part. They have a rebuttal to the opposition. This is the lesson, the third lesson, an important lesson that we need to grab onto here from this passage, that Christians have a rebuttal to the opposition. And it comes in two parts, that of conviction and courage. See, this is what we see when Zerubbabel and Jeshua and, and the heads of the households tell these adversaries that you have no part with us. They have conviction here to know this is the work the Lord has assigned to us. This is the job that we've been sent here to do, and we do not have time to be swept away and be distracted by half-hearted worship. So they know the assignment. They know who it's from. They have the mission kind of in their DNA, this conviction that we will not waver, that we will press on. And the other side of this is the courage to count the cost. See, to press on costs them a great deal. To keep going with, the Lord had, with what the Lord had assigned to them cost them a great deal. It could have been their livelihood. It could be their own physical well-being. It could be the actual success of the project as the supply chain gets disrupted. There was a cost to stay committed to the mission. And they press on and encourage. They do not back down. Now, Israel, we'll see, they waver at this. They're not a great, they're, they're a little bit of a role model, but they do not succeed in its entirety at doing this. And the place that we have to go to see success in this is the person and work of Jesus Christ through his entire life, his entire ministry of earth. He faced opposition. And Jesus had conviction more than any other man or woman who has set foot on this earth. Jesus had conviction. He said in John 6, 38, I have come to do the will of the Father. I've come to do the will of the Father. I know what's been set before me, and Jesus knew that part of that included going to the cross. He knew his mission. Jesus didn't make compromises, though he had many opportunities to. Right, Peter? Oh, Lord, you won't be crucified? What does he say? Get behind me, Satan. You're not gonna stop this. 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. Satan comes and tempts Jesus. Hey, I can, I can give you what you want without the cross. Nope, I have come to do the will of the Father. The Pharisees and the scribes and those who opposed Jesus, the Roman soldiers, those who came and try to stop Jesus from doing what he was meant to do, he pressed on. He knew the mission. His mission was to seek and to save the lost, to free the captives from the domain of darkness. Now, here's the thing. Jesus says um, that if you are not with him, you are against him. He's talking about the spirit of, of divisiveness, Beelzebub. He's, he's, he's being accused of being, uh, having some de demonic force and he says this, if you are not with me, you're against me. He's talking about the spiritual nature. Now, we are influenced by one spiritual nature or another, some spiritual power or another. It's either the power of darkness or the power of light in Christ. And Jesus, and sometimes we're un unaware of this reality, that we are trapped in the domain of darkness, and Jesus came to free the captives from the domain of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of, his, of, of eternal light. 
Jesus came to build a temple that was not made by hands, but by the hand of God, to build the church. He had conviction in this matter, and it came with great opposition. Right, All of that I just laid out, so much opposition, yet he had the courage to press on through that. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Not just the cross, that life of opposition. He faced adversity, every chance that he had for the joy that was set before him, and he did not back down. And the courage that Jesus had was so thorough, so complete, that he was willing to pay what it would cost, that he would lay down his own life, that he would put himself in the hands of his adversaries to, to give them the moment where they think like, okay, we're finally winning. We're triumphing over this guy. But Jesus, as he was crucified, died, and was buried the third day, he was raised again. The power of sin, death, the grave, Satan's schemes could not prevail. Jesus rose victorious. And I, I, we're told in Col Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that going to the cross resulted in this disarming and shaming of the powers, that Jesus showed himself as the victor, that, that he came out on top. All of the, the schemes that the devil had been deployed, they didn't work. And now he is resurrected. Now he sits in power at the right hand of the Father. Now he is ruling the cosmos. And what that means is that there's not one thing, not one hair on our head can be affected without the permission of Jesus. Now, one piece of adversity can come our way that catches Jesus off guard. See, Jesus went to the cross. He disarmed the powers so that you and I could believe, so that we could align ourselves to the mission which matters the most in this world that we might imitate him in every way and live this cruciform life that it requires both conviction and courage. And so Christians, let me ask you, are there places in your life where you are compromising right now? H have you lost sight of the mission of God to be a worshiper, to create a household of worship, to, to participate with a, a culture of worship within the local congreg congregation? Are you compromising? Has the mission taken a backseat? If so, the invitation is to repent, to turn and to see Jesus as supreme in your life, to see his mission as the most important thing that you can give your life to. Right? Have that conviction. And if, if you have the conviction but you lack courage, come to Christ who will supply. Believe in his power. Receive through the Holy Spirit. Draw from it so that you can continue to follow Jesus, to be an imitator of Christ. And take this to heart. Jesus says, take heart for I have overcome the world. See, there's no rival that escapes the victory of Jesus. There, there are no true rivals to Christ. And so as Christians, we, we come underneath the victory that is ours. And we press on knowing that Christ walks with us. He supplies our every need. 
instills within us both conviction and courage to be faithful to the mission. The mission of God will not be thwarted. The gates of hell will not prevail. Church, I want to call us into live like that's true. Live like Jesus has actually been resurrected and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That there's no power outside of his reign. To live like that is true and join us in building a church and a home and a city that is committed to the most supreme Christ. To do this with conviction and courage that can only come from Christ, the victor. And this is our assurance as we come to the Lord's table this morning that though it appears at the, at the crucifixion that he was, he was defeated. I mean, that's what we, we look at the elements this morning. We see uh, the body broken, his blood shed. And though it looks like weakness, it's really a sign of victory because Christ has been resurrected. And it's this power that is at work in the resurrection of Christ that is at work in us now to be a people of conviction and courage. So take and eat. Be bolstered up by what the Father has for you here in this meal. And let us give ourselves to building a culture that worships the Lord. The men who are serving would come forward as I pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your kindness and your supernatural strength that enables us to live the life which you've called us to. That you've given us a mission to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to obey all that you commanded. That is the mission that's set before us. Or as we say it, to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. Would you help us to do this with conviction and courage, drawing from the power of the Spirit who works mightily in us. We pray against the schemes of the devil that they would not thwart us from what we have been called to do and you would magnify yourself, that you would take whatever little meager things that we have to offer and multiply them like you did with the fish and the loaves and, and make something beautiful and magnificent that testifies to your glory and splendor now and to the generations. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.